You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is the number one hunting app in the country, and at only $29.99, HuntStand offers a ton of functionality for hunters all over the country. Whether you own your own property or strictly hunt public, you can choose from over a dozen base maps, view property ownership information, 3D mapping, local weather, log your sightings and harvest, as well as use their trail cam management software and print maps from your hunt areas. Download it today at the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hunt Stand. Upgrade your arsenal. The Southern Ground Hunting Podcast is brought to you by Spartan Forge. It's forged in combat and tailored for hunters. Spartan Forge stands at the nexus of machine learning and whitetail deer hunting to deliver truly intuitive and science-based products that save the hunter time spent scouting, planning, and executing their hunts. You can start your free 14-day trial today by visiting spartanforge.ai and you can use the code SOUTHERNGROUND, that's all lowercase, all one word, SOUTHERNGROUND at checkout, and that'll get you 25% off of your purchase. If you're wanting to know more about saddle hunting, well, check out tetherednation.com for all your saddle hunting needs. Tethered is for saddle hunters, by saddle hunters, and they're redefining ultralight hunting. If you'd like to support the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast, you can visit patreon.com forward slash southern ground hunting, or you can click on the link in the show notes of this podcast episode. We offer two different tiers for our patrons that offer a solid list of benefits. We'd love for you to join the Southern Ground Hunting community today. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash southern ground hunting. And now, let's get to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Local Legend series. We have got an extra special guest today. Drew, I don't know about you, man, but I've look, been looking forward to this this podcast for a while now, probably about a year when yeah. I decided I was going to reach out to uh to our guest today um yeah i'm 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 super excited parker i've i've read his book part part one and it's uh i literally couldn't put it down i mean i i seriously read it um i, I mean in, in an hour i just could not put it down because it's just it was so fascinating to me so I'm, I'm super excited about the guests that we have on today so this is this is something a little bit different right mm-hmm. like it's it not it like is. every other guest. Like literally, this is the first guest that we've had that would fall into this uh, criteria. Um, it is definitely a local legends. Uh, it's local legends worthy, um, probably national legends worthy, and maybe not even for all the right reasons. Right? Like, like this whole thing. Right. Um, and 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 listeners, y'all will figure out quickly what we're what we're talking about. Uh, here in just just a second, but this whole thing, it, it's mostly legendary for a couple things. This guy killed a lot of deer. He's an incredible hunter, um, obviously, because deer are deer. Like, they're hard to kill. Right. This guy has killed a bunch of them, but he poached them, which is really interesting. And every, I know people probably just, like, turned over thinking, I'm about to listen to a podcast on Local Legend Series about poaching. And I'm going to tell you, like, you know, like, we, we don't, we're not condoning poaching at all. Not even a little bit. Um, but, no. but, but our guest today has some stories. Phenomenal. You're exactly right, Drew. <laughs> the stories are so <laughs> fascinating. 
um, that you just you, you won't be able to stop listening. And our guest today is none other, none other than the Prince of Poachers, Mr. Charles Beatty. Charles, how's it going out there in Texas? It's great. Now, both me and Drew have lived in Texas, and before we were before we started this at this podcast, we were we were talking about something that's very serious in uh, in the world <laughs> in in the country of Texas, and that is barbecue. Now. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't I live in yeah. Alabama. Drew lives in Alabama. We kind of that's kind of the first thing that you think about for us, for people who have lived there. I'm from there originally. Um, is like it, everywhere else in the world offers, you know, it has its advantages and things, but it's it's tough to it's tough to not think about good barbecue when you think about Texas. Um, so. That being said, are you a uh, are you a pit barbecue kind of guy, or is that not really your style? I can put anybody to the test with my own brisket, oh. whatever else I want to cook. Oh. I, I smoke hogs, yeah, I smoke hog ribs all the time, shoulders. You know, it, it's uh, really one of my specialties. I know how to cook. I'm a, like this old woman told this girl one time I went to a fish fry. I helped with everything, and the old woman there, she said, Charlie. Someday you're going to make some woman a good wife. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's well, true. And, and, and spoken and, in true Texas fashion. I mean, there ain't nothing, yeah, there ain't yeah. no other kind of pride like Texas pride. You know what I mean? No, um, no, no. Oh man, Parker. And, and honestly, whenever we first started talking about Mr. Charles, when, and, you know, obviously from Texas, I automatically think of brisket and big bucks. Yeah, I mean because that's what you that's what you know Texas as is for their barbecue and and for their big bucks and guys I'm 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 just telling you if, if you want a good fascinating read you have to pick up uh, the Prince of Poachers Part One it's I literally Parker I couldn't put it down absolutely I, I couldn't put it down so Parker I don't I don't know where you want to start but like I would love to start at at the beginning if, if that's all right Mr Charles and just kind of you know, uh, kind of like take us through where, where this all started. And I mean, um, your, your love for hunting and, and all that. Yeah. I grew up like a lot of people with a BB gun in my hands and went on into a taxidermy job at about age 14. And I'd already you know, taught myself how to mount birds with the old JWO wood supply, you know, and taxidermy uh, lessons. And when my boss, the first boss saw what I had accomplished on my own. Well, he hired me immediately. And the next day, I worked, you know, in his shop, managed six quail, made a hundred dollars, and thought I was going to be rich. And I've worked in <laughs> taxidermy shops ever since. And I saw right. a lot about the game head mounting under his, you know, first year working me. And the next year, I mounted eighty deer heads. You know, <laughs> I mean, I advanced real quick into it all. And got good at fish, and uh, then in 77, 76, actually, I got this job offered down in Kingsville, and it took me right into the heart of the King Ranch, and that's what I went for. I went down there, hopefully going to get a um, connection and an invite to hunt the King Ranch legally. It didn't work out. The <laughs> professor introduced me to all the local bikers and stuff and other big shots, and Great hunters, gun shop owner, and, you know, they they liked me. But I couldn't break through that barrier with the King Ranch and get invited. And it wasn't too long, too many months later, that man, that professor that moved me down there, 
And he lost a lease on his downtown location. And we moved in with the major taxidermy there and joined forces with this big shop. And at that point, I began to meet and know all the local outlaw deer hunters. I mean, there was plenty of them. And they talked me into going. After I gave up on getting invited to hunt the King Ranch, you know, I fought the politics as long as I could, and then I gave in. And I went and started jumping the fence with some outlaws there, and then I got a real close call on some uh, cattle roundup going on in an open grassland pasture. I had to spend about four hours in a cactus I dove into to hide, and horse riders and helicopters all around me, and that shook me out of the King Ranch on that grassland hunt. And I said, I won't ever be back in this. I'm going to find a better place to do this. So I ended let, up let me. The man in the taxidermy. Can I interrupt you real quick, Charles? Go ahead. Um, yeah. Because I know what a lot of people are probably thinking right here. Because and you kind of you kind of breezed by it because that was your lifestyle. That's what you did, and you've told the story a lot. I, I get that. But uh, tell me a little bit about the time you said that was in the seventies. What what was the um, like? What were you going to be charged with? What was the penalty for being caught poaching? Versus the cost that it would actually cost to go and do it legally. Yeah, uh, this was all 22 to 44 years ago. So 44 years ago, the charge was actually simple trespassing. And they didn't even have the hunting without consent of landowner laws that they have now. And over the years, those fell into place. And then they stiffened and got, they went from, you know, a, a class C misdemeanor all the way to class A in my latter years, and the year I was caught, the next year it became a felony here in Texas to hunt without consent of landowners. So there's your your penalty phase, and that took place during the 20 years that I was, the 22 years, 22 years span that I was doing all my outlaw hunting in. Now, I'll throw this in real quick. After killing 41 bucks with me and my friends total, I had killed 18 of the biggest white-tailed deer anybody my age had ever thought of shooting, and I was ruined already, but I came back satisfied to a degree to Fort Worth, and my boss talked me into going to church with him. Well, he got me in church, and I fell under conviction, and you know, long story short, my dad preached 10 years, my grandpa preached 54 years, uh, you know. I heard all those songs when I was a kid growing yeah. up till about 11 or 12 years old. And it just struck home. I mean, it struck a chord in my heart, and I was convicted. I knew at that point, all right, what I've been doing is wrong. I mean, not just outlaw hunting. I was drinking and dancing and living it up. I didn't, you know, went after all the women. Nothing about my life was right with God. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up going to that church three weeks in a row with him. And, well, that was just more than I could stand. I went down to the altar and got saved. And, my whole life turned around. I stopped poaching. I, I didn't even feel the desire to go anymore. I was addicted to it after that first seven years. Well, I didn't think it would happen, but I, I lost interest in it. And I even got under conviction to a point. It's strange what happened next, but one day I was sitting there in my shop, and I'd been feeling it for you know months. I even asked a game warden what would happen if I turned in my heads because I felt led to turn in my deer heads. He yeah. said, sound like to me, Turkey, you dug yourself a mighty deep hole. He didn't have any sympathy. He just, you know, hit me hard with that, and I had to think it over some more. One day I'm sitting there, and I went into this zombie-like trance. I heard the Spirit of God say, get up and go in there to the phone where you've got the game warden's phone number written on the wall and call him. I want you to turn in all your heads. I was like in a trance. I got up, I walked halfway in there, picked up the phone, and I started to dial the number, and I just locked up. 
And about an hour later, this friend of mine came by as a real strong Christian, and he said, what? He said, the Holy Ghost told you to do something, and you didn't do it? And I said, well, that's what I was thinking. And he said, man, get on the phone and call them right now. So I did. And the next morning, they came over there and picked up all my heads. I turned them all in. It flipped everybody that knew me completely out. They'd already had one, you know doubts about me losing my mind, but when they saw me turn them heads in, they knew I'd lost my mind. You know, but like I told the guys on the Alabama Sportsman's Podcast, I said, you don't lose your mind like everybody thinks you do. Everybody just thinks you do. You know, yeah. you, you stop doing what you used to do, and you, you start doing good things and straighten up your act. And so I didn't think I would ever go back to the poaching. But I had this backstabbing buddy that I was training there at the shop and seduced my wife into an affair. I didn't even know about it till it was over, and she was divorcing me and running off with a banker to Missouri. Well, I stood to lose my son, and she stood to lose him too because my buddy was going to testify about their affair. And she had two other children from a previous marriage, and her first husband and I were teamed up, and we were going to take all three kids away from her, and she knew it. And her parents got out the big money and bought the high-dollar attorneys, and the story that's coming about the divorce alone is book uh, movie worthy. I mean, that might just seal the deal. When they see what happened to me during that divorce, that's the stuff you see in a movie. Then I get angry and, and, and I still wasn't going to go back to the poaching, but these cops talked me into going. First one, <laughs> then the other. And it just went completely out of control then. I was so angry from what happened to me during that divorce and losing my son and what all the state put me through believing her lies. I mean, she, she lied on me and said I stuck a gun to her head and threatened to blow her head off. And, and that's how she persuaded my own parents even to doubt me and, and turn against me because my brother, my brother Ray, had, had taken his life by suicide three years earlier. And they, those people, those hypocrites, they were so sorry they played on that they took advantage of my neurotic condition my parents were in after losing a son to suicide and they were biting their fingers off worried sick what would i do if, if i didn't get my way and work the divorce now, i was just tr trying to keep the boy here in texas within reach of seeing because mm -hmm. she was planning on running off with this biker well when it all fell through first cop got me to go poaching and then the second one and then i just fell back in love with the hunt and it was my escape I just, it was like God was making it all up to me for how bad I'd had it. But what the state of Texas did to me was criminal. So I got angry. I started caping off bucks and dragging them out in roads. I got vengeance. I wanted them to know what I was doing. And I didn't like doing it for that reason. It was not me. It was something I was, you know, letting out of me, just letting off steam. And, and I guess I was really probably crying out for some attention, you know, where, you know, they knew I was doing it. And I was just trying to teach them a lesson, like, really? They wanted to see me going crazy. Now you've got it. Deal with it. She wanted a divorce. She got a divorce. Now y'all got me. You know, I, I was angry with the state of Texas, the laws, the system, the FBI, the CIA, everybody that's, you know, supposed to back up someone having their child kidnapped. They didn't help me any. They left me hanging. I lost my son. I'm still real angry about it. I'm fixing to get my vindication 30 years later, and I'll have the last laugh about it. But I have been reunited with my son. You know, I've been, you know, aware of him and, and met him for the last eight or nine years. But we're, we're still unable to build a relationship like we're going to, but it's going to happen. We just need time, and I've got to finish this second part of my book and, and uh, you know, get my story out there and make a little money where I can spend time going and doing good things with him. But I ain't kidding you. I did stuff 
to get attention. Uh, and, you know, the game wardens were finding the deer I was you know, taping off and dragging out in roads. And, you know, they set out to get me in a manner that was just unequal from the past. I faced this old man named Tom East down there for years, and he would put up helicopters, and he'd get after me something fierce. But when the state realized I was hunting again, they got after me even even more so. Manpower, you know, troops on the ground, men on the ground trying to pick up my tracks and, and find me, find any camps I had. They were watching the perimeter is why they never got on to me for that eight of the first nine years I was back at it because they were trying to figure out where I was coming in and going out, and they weren't able to pick up a trail there. I was hunting so dead middle of the county, they didn't have a clue. If they just searched the whole ranch, they might have found some tracks, but they, they underestimated the level I was penetrating that that whole county. Talk about that and for a so second, Charles. They weren't even. If you can, talk about yeah, they, talk about how far you were going. My track. How far were you going in yeah, when I you went to camp, hike in? I had a camp 14 miles deep. I had a camp 17 miles deep to the northeast of there. And like I say, you know, they were looking for me in the white of the egg. I was hunting inside the yoke. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have a clue how deep I was going in there. So tell us about these ranches. Um, for people who are not well, from Texas, they wouldn't be familiar with the King and the Kennedy ranches about how big they actually are. Whole counties. For instance, the, yeah. the King Ranch used to be five whole counties, and then it got split up when you know the generations began to marry off and you know separate, you know get hostile with one another, but. They married in different directions. Some of the da- the Claybird daughters, there were five of them, and, and uh, I think only one of them stayed with T.O., the, the brother. And I know they had two brothers. There was T.O. and another one. Well, the the one girl, I think married Leslie, uh, married uh, Perry Finger. Leslie Finger was the one that stayed with them. She was the Claybird daughter, stayed with them. The other four daughters moved, married and took other counties, split the whole thing, and you know, basically mostly five pieces. But no, Bobby Shelton married one of those Claybird girls, and she stayed there. That was it. There were two of the daughters stayed with the foundation of King Ranch. The other three married Tommy, Robert East, and someone else. I can't remember now what the connection was there. But anyway, the Kennedy Ranch is a whole county itself, and it's got the mass of live oak more than the King Ranch. And then when I found that through a man that came in the taxidermy that owned a section of land in the middle of the Kennedy after I saw how safe it was down there and how great the hunting was, I, there was no point in risking it on the King Ranch anymore. We we hit it a time or two at night, rattling at night, and you know in and out before daylight. But one one hunt, we did spend a whole day in a brush pile by this old lake, listening to an old you know hand, some farmer or something, and they're you know, repairing broken boards in the walkway on their pier in that lake. But that's a hell of a story. It's you know, but. Probably the only time we significantly did any damage to King Ranch deer because I had gotten that close call and didn't want to go back in that open country. But, you know, I did some road hunting for a while there, but then I realized how dangerous that was. Road hunting is the most dangerous form of outlaw hunting you can do. They're going to get you. It's just a matter of time. I have talked but, to several people out in West Texas that, uh, that do that often. Um, growing up, uh, you know, <laughs> my dad's a pastor as well and so you'd meet people who had similar <laughs> similar stories and uh you'd meet people that had the similar stories to you as they there i mean there are groups of guys who go out and do this and in texas spotlighting for hogs rabbits varmints is all legal and deer get 
in the mix of that pretty easily. And so you'd see yeah. somebody with a similar story, you know, they grew up outlaw hunting and you're like, Hey, where'd you kill that deer? Oh, you know, we were driving around at night and it ran out in front of us. And it's like, and so we shot it. Like, that's just, it's, people don't understand that that's a, it's not right. It's not good, but it's fairly common there in Texas um, with those big giant pieces of private property, especially. And, and, you know, I think I heard your story the first time and I wasn't, you know, I was blown away by the stories that you had, but, you know, growing up in Texas, that was something that I knew existed. But for guys who might not know, explain, you said there was a a group of people that did all the outlaw hunting around there. It was a pretty, you know, it, it was not irregular. It is not just for you. There was a lot of people. Talk about that group and like how y'all communicated together. Did y'all hang out like where it was at your friend group? <laughs> it's funny because at that time, Hank Williams Jr. came out with family tradition and it was so apropos. I mean, I've, I met all the second generation of outlaw hunters and they were the, you know, just a family tradition of it. And I mean, they celebrated it every year. Like we own that land just as much as the King Ranch did, you know, and they felt that way being born and bred down there. And their parents taught them that they lived off the deer year round. They didn't just kill them in the rut, shoot the big trophies. They lived off the deer and the javelin and the hogs and, you know, the turkey. They lived off the bounty of the land. They grew up doing it. Their great-grandpas probably did it. Yeah. You know, so it, it, it just swept me right into feeling just okay as all get out about what I was doing. It was no big deal. And it was a twenty-seven fifty fine if they caught you. If, if you shot off the road then, it was a $25, $35 ticket. You know? That's crazy. Now they take your truck, they take your house, they take everything you got. That is wild to yeah. me to I think know. about $35. I mean, if you slapped a $200 ticket on there, that's still such a small price to pay to go and do something. I mean, out there anymore in Texas, you're going to just to kill some of the deer like you were killing, you're going to spend $15,000 to go and kill a buck like that. You know, I mean, they're they're not cheap. Easy. They're you not know, cheap. You may not, yeah, you may not get one worth that and go back and have to do it again and again. Finally get the deer you want, you know, get your dream buck. So you can throw 50000 out the window, and you might still not have the one you really want. Exactly. And it's so a shot in the dark. People, I think people need to understand that times were different back then. Um, you know, tell me this, Charles. If if the fines were as stiff and the everything was as stiff back then as they are now, would that have been something that you would have been willing to risk? I wanted one so bad, I probably would have. <laughs> and if I got away with it like I did, it would have probably led to a career in it, just like I lived. You know, I mean, I can I can see how someone at 20 years old right now, they might just count the cost and say, uh, you know, there's many a slip, points the cup and a lip, like Billy the Kid said, and go go chance it, but play the odds. It's like Vegas. It's it's uh, gambling. You know, the odds are they're not going to catch you. But if you keep it up, eventually they will. Yeah, you know, they're, They might get you on the first time, too. I know one guy that went across the bay in a boat with a friend of mine while I wasn't poaching. I had just gone back to poaching a year back, okay? 
they crossed the bay and went in the Kennedy and shot two beautiful deer, and they had pictures of them, and they were coming back across the bay with the, they had a float and a string, a cord tied on the heads in case they had to throw them overboard being pulled over by game ones, and they were pulled over, they were chased down, and they threw the heads, and the, their little float cord got hung up around the racks, and they lost them, they never were able to find them later. But the game wardens didn't check the fanny pack of the one guy and find the film that had pictures of the deer. If they'd have had that, they could have charged them restitution because we already had restitution laws then. But um, they didn't think to do that. And while they were waiting for transport at the dock, they said, hey, where's that film in my fanny pack? Drop it in the bay. So he pulled it out of his fanny pack and dropped that roll of film in the bay. I told the game wardens <laughs> later, they said, they threw, a, they threw a head over, didn't they? I said too. <laughs> so they were sick about it. They never recovered them. But um, you know, the, they just made a big mistake not searching them better. But there you go. That was his first trip. He got caught the first time he went. So that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now was yeah. this was this it's something? It's, it's, go ahead, Drew. Well, no. Uh, you can ask Parker because I want to. Uh, there's there's some stories that I would I want to ask. Charles about one of them is uh, uh one of them is the big 30 inch buck uh Charles and then the one the the one where you walked up on the five huge ones um there and um it, it was in part one and it was it's a big 30 inch buck as you said with a double dot or double double drop times and then also what's the most deer you've ever rattled up in the Kennedy in in one day so can I interrupt you, Trey? Because well I want to, well yeah. I want to get to that. Um, okay. And that that was kind of where, where going, Parker, so. you, were you talking about talking about rattling? Uh, that that was going to be kind of my next question. Obviously, you mentioned at one point that you you had killed forty one bucks off of there. Um, you know, it's a large number. Whether we don't even have to know how many it is, it's a large number of very big Texas whitetails that you killed off that place. And that doesn't include the amount of does that you probably killed for meat out there, hogs, turkeys. I mean, there's a lot of animals that probably were killed. But it, you could put me in a whole bunch of different places, and it would still be a test of my skill to go and kill a buck like that. Because mature bucks are smart. They're weary. They're they're always on you know on their toes. They're smart. What was it that you were doing, Charles? I let, I let, I let, yeah, well, I'll tell you what happened to me. I think six of the biggest deer I've ever seen in my life got away. So that shows you the difference in, and, and the differences in them and the smaller deer around 150, 155 bucks. The, the minds are sharper. I'm telling you, the bigger the deer, the more brains they got, the more careful they are about letting that big rack be seen. It just goes hand in hand. There's no question about it. I had an opportunity to kill this big old 185, 10 point. And I let some nail guy win me at 500 yards, and when I top the hill, he left. This 160 buck stayed there. That shows you the difference right there uh-huh. in a 160 and a 185. The brains are different. They're smarter. And I figured out the next morning that that big one had been being shot at by some uh, guides breaking perimeters and hunting the Holy Land where they weren't supposed to be. They came down in there, and they popped shots. And uh, I knew then why he was just that extra edge. He'd been pressured. He'd already been shot at. They'd been hunting that deer. They'd missed him before. Hmm. And so he knew to leave when any sign of any kind of, you know, heat coming down. When them nail guys spooked, he knew it was time to leave the pasture. He was in open country. He knew it was time to get out of there. 
what so was what you was know, your more like a, what was your tactic of getting of finding these deer? Uh, were you just doing a lot of spot and stalk glassing? Were you like like what was you, no, what would you say was your no. main thing that you were doing out there? Ninety nine percent rattling, staying in the heaviest brush I could and rattling. I like to hunt what I call the border country. This might help some hunters. I would find that the the deer were greater in number all along perimeters. If you could find brush that had open pasture and hunt those edges, just work your way up and down them, you know, that's where there's more deer population. That's more territorial boundary. Anytime there's a clearing, there's a boundary line all the way around it, mm-hmm. you know, and the, that mass, that huge mass of live oak, I hunted the southern edge of it. So I had the perfect scenario with that. I had it where they were gardening for all the does in and out of that open pasture, feeding and grazing at night. And the bucks would set up territory all along that perimeter. There were a great number of boundary dispute areas. You beat the bone in that, and you'll have five, six, seven, eight bucks come running up in Jeez. the live oak mod along the edge. That's crazy. And that's kind of a take your pick. But you usually, when you see that many in one wide, you don't see a shooter. Yeah. You see you know, a bunch of young deer. You got a big shooter comes running up. He's usually by himself. He's done run everything else out of the neighborhood. He don't tolerate no other bucks. Mm-hmm. You yeah. you talk a lot about that in in mm-hmm. the past times I've heard you tell your story. You talk a lot about being in that thick cover. And uh, while I don't necessarily want to make this into too much of a tactics podcast, I do think that that's <laughs> that's a <laughs> that's a, a a good a good thing for somebody to to know. I mean, obviously. Most people are not going to be hunting places that have the population of deer that those ranches have, and a lot of our listener bases are public land guys, and um, you know, deer are a little more, a lot more pressured and more weary about about what they do. But um, the th- same thing seems to hold true: is big bucks like thick cover, always. Like they love that thick cover, no yep. matter where you're at. Um, and I think that's. Uh, just in listening to you talk uh, on on several different podcasts and uh, reading your book and, and things like that, that seems to be one of those those things that that's a, a common denominator between a lot of guys is the guys that kill big deer, they continue to stay in that thick cover. So while you're doing this, are you doing most of your hunting from the ground or are you trying to get in elevated positions or a little bit of mixture of both? How's that working out for you? No, you... You just need to get a, a, a view on the downwind side of you. You have, you need 40 or 50 yards clear to see pretty good downwind of you because they're always going to come downwind. There's yeah. never a time a big deer won't circle you 40, 50 yards downwind. I've seen them run right at me, but they've come in from the downwind side even doing that. But, you know, they want to smell what they're coming up on. And what I did... I, the first buck I'd kill, I'd cut his hocks off, you know, real stinky hocks full of piss, and I would salt them, keep them from sour and rotten, put them in a Ziploc baggie, and I would add to that a few drops of dough and heat piss. And I would hang one of those on a limb 10 yards to one side of me and 10 yards to the other as a cover. And when they smelled that, instead of circling where they were going to get the wind on me, they'd turn and come right up wind at that scent. That, that's exactly what they were looking to smell. When they smelled it, they'd turn and beeline it. That'd keep them from going to where they could smell me at all. Then they'd run right up to me and look at me at five yards. You know, they'd be on me before they saw me. 
I, you know, have good cover around me, but I'd be able to see downwind 40, 50 yards. That's just, that's the most important tip I can give any hunter. You got to be able to see downwind when you're rattling. Yeah. Yeah. And, and hmm. for me, I haven't had a ton of situations where, um, I've rattled successfully, uh, maybe not even in Texas, even in that West Texas brush country up there, but, um, you're, you're exactly right. You know, I think, I think there are some factors that, that definitely went into play for you that helped you be successful. Now, Charles, was there other guys out there that were doing it as much as you and being as successful? Obviously, don't mention their names or anything uh, like that, but... Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, there were some other great hunters that killed great deer all around deep south Texas, but... I just happened to have the you know inside scoop on the Kennedy. I knew that ranch. I mean, shore to shore, highway to the intercoastal canal. I hunted the whole county over those twenty years. You know, I knew the depths of it. A lot of people, had they known what I knew, they would have went back there. They would have stayed longer. But a lot of people hunted the first five and six miles, but they didn't penetrate the ranch another ten to really see what was there. That's crazy. You know, I mean, that's we crazy thought, to think about. During that last nine, yeah, yeah, during the last nine years that I was, you know, back to poaching, we brought seventy-five more big deer out of there. I mean, nine years to do that, but that's a lot of trophy bucks under one like this. So these two cops I took were bragging, you know, saying how they shot great deer. And it was funny because another outlaw buddy of mine, he's the one that provided the backpacks so we could go on the first hunt I took the cop on when I came out of retirement. They were bragging. They got the big head. They're bragging about their deer. This buddy of mine, Big L, he looked at him and he said, shit, one man killed all those deer. <laughs> <laughs> he put them in their place. If they hadn't went with me, they wouldn't have killed shit, you know. <laughs> and they said you're exactly. They said you're exactly right, Larry. You're exactly right. He's responsible for all of them. So these guys, <laughs> these guys just come to you. They, I want you to tell that story because that's so crazy to me that these two guys that are cops are the people that got you back into poaching. Um, that's well, just so I wild. I bear rugs for them. Yeah, I mounted bear rugs for them. I managed, you know, some other things. I'd known them for years, you know, from 84 up, you know, having my own taxidermy. And this was 1990. So, okay, so I'd known them about six years. And felt like I could trust that first one when he began to, you know, suggest that I take him. He was just dying to kill a big deer. And they, everybody that knew me, once the divorce was over, they were all eyes on me waiting to see what I was going to do. They were like, okay, is he going to go back to it? Or is he going to stay straight? I mean, everybody, even my best friend, Super Coop, he sniffed me out after four days of my phone not being answered. He knew I had gone hunting, and he came to the shop just as we drove up with five, six deer total. Had five the cop killed and the one I killed. But the day it all took place was when that cop came in and he saw this 141 10-point heavy horn buck from Pelicana County. He said, Man, I'm dying to kill one. The bucks were just starting to run. I said, well, George just told me, called me, and told me that they were coming to Horns in South Texas. He said, him and his nephew just went rattled up 14 bucks yesterday. And he was really excited then. He goes, man, I can't, I can't even imagine them coming up to a rattle. And I said, it's insane, but it's real. And so Big L comes in, my other best outlaw hunting buddy. He'd been doing it while I wasn't poaching six years. And so he starts saying, look, 
I'll give you my backpacks. I didn't have any backpacks anymore. He said, I'll loan you all my rifle, give you my backpack. And the cop had a bow. And we ended up taking his bow and going after Larry talked me into taking it. And, uh, you know, he, he, what was funny, I'm going to tell this later, this is hysterical. I didn't understand how they had such influence with the chief of police. They were on, he was on duty when he came by the shop that day. <laughs> and he said, I've got two days off starting tomorrow. And he said, let me go talk to my chief. See if I can get two more days off to make the hunts. I said, we can't go down there and back two days. We need at least four days. And we'll have to drive all night, hunt those four days, and drive all night coming home. And that's what we did. But he leaves my shop in a squad car in a uniform. He comes back in about an hour, and he said, I got the two extra days we need. Let's go. Well, long story short, I was confused. I was like, man, he had to say something that that chief would approve of him having that extra time to go on this deer hunt. I didn't know what it was, but when I took the second cop, I found out. The second cop got in there on me with me, and he started telling me this story on the chief. Him and the chief used to be outlaw fishermen. They hit Squaw <laughs> Creek Lake down here on bicycles with inner tubes and, and uh, scuba flippers, and they were cornered by a game warden. And the game warden said, all right, I've got y'all. He said, what do we do? He said, just start swimming towards the bank. He said, all right, so this cop starts swimming towards the bank. Chief pulled out a cigar out of his pocket, and he pulled the plastic wrapper off of it, bit the end off of it, and said, now, now we're going to chalk this one up to experience. We won't be back. He said, you blamely, blam, blam, y'all better get over here. And the game on pulls his pistol starts threatening him. And he said, no, nah, you're not going to shoot anybody over fishing. He said, "Way well, I figured we'll be halfway back to Mineral Wells time you get over here to the other side of the lake. And he cussed him a bunch more, and he just paddled real slow over to the bank. And they took stringers, eight and ten-pound bass out of there you couldn't hardly drag. And they went over, he went over the hill and joined with the other cop. And the other cop said, what are we doing? He goes, run. He goes, why didn't you run? say run to start with? He goes, I wasn't giving that game warden the satisfaction of seeing me run. <laughs> <laughs> He was the chief of police. You know, th that just goes to show you there ain't no line drawn in the sand. That old black warden, Malcolm Watson, that came through the warrant on me on an envelope, he said, there ain't no line drawn in the sand over who will poach a deer and who won't. He said, I caught bankers, doctors, lawyers, preachers. And I said, have you caught the Pope? He said, no, but I'm looking for him. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can pat themselves on the back and say they would never poach. All these people that attack me and say that, let me tell you something. The Bible says, let no man boast about where he stands today, lest he be the next to fall. That's just like my ex. She was so proud of her morality, and she humps my backstabbing buddy four months. <laughs> she was the next to fall. Here they were patting themselves on the back, running me down, and then all of a sudden her panties grew wings and flew across the bedroom wall. You know, seeing this. Temptation is tempting for everybody. There's no line drawn on who'll sin and who won't. We're all subject to it. Yeah. You know, but yeah. for people to say yeah. that I'm a sorry scumbag piece of shit for being a poster, that was all you know, over 22 years ago. It was up to 44 years ago when it happened. And, and back like it was yesterday on their lease at night, and I shot the deer off their feeder. I got news for them. They need to quit flattering themselves. Their lease and their deer, neither one big enough to interest me, you know. So <laughs> I never shot deer off people's lease. 
You know, I hunted totally unhunted whole counties. That's you know, right. It was like, yeah. I mean, they asked me why I did it, why I went there. It's like asking Dillinger why he robbed banks. That's where all the money is. I went where all the big bucks were. It's that simple. Do the math. I don't even know where to go from there. I, 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 you, you caught oh, I me. Do. I do. You caught me, Charles. I, I, I don't normally have a lack of words, but after that, I, I don't Charles, even know where to go. I got one. Yeah. I got one. Charles, you were, you were so, you were so, I mean, and your your book said it, you were so addicted to killing these deer. You actually bought bullets from Kroger, didn't you? And Yeah, uh, that, that and, the homemade reload. Yeah. Yeah, the home. Yeah, could could you tell everybody about the homemade reload? Yeah, I had some burnt brass, but what happened? This front came in ahead of what they said it was going to on the weather. That happens a lot. Those fronts down there that come sweeping in out of the west, and they're talking about it coming in from the north and the temperature drop. But what happens is the the whirlwinds it circles in out of the southwest, and when it hits, that's when the rain takes place. And all it takes at that time of year is for the deer, for the deer to go into a frenzy again and come to the rattle good is once it rains. It'll cool on down the next day or two, but it'll it, once it starts raining, they're nuts. They're rutting like hell again. Well, I let myself get caught off guard without any ammo. I mean, I had zero, no shells, no rounds at all. And I said, well, I'm going to run up to the pawn shop. They're not closed yet, but they were. They just closed. And I said, well, I'm going to go to the Kroger. They've got a little gun department there, a little sporting goods department. And it was open, but... I didn't find seven millimeter eight shells. I found seven millimeter mag. I saw primers for some reloading, and I said, "Well," and they had the seven mags. I said, "I'm just instead of buying a you know deal of powder and not knowing what I'm doing, what powder I'm putting, I'll just take the powder out of the magnum and I'll pull those ten grain heavier bullets and I'll put them into my brass. I'll re- reboot my brass with primers, and I did. And I took a little feed clamp and I rigged up a little countersink hole on a piece of two before and I see clamped the old primers I punched them with a, a nail set and then I see clamped the primer back in on that piece of pressing it against that piece of two before and then I just pulled the bullets out of that seven millimeter mag and I, some people think I broke the seal I broke the round of the bullet but I was very careful with them pulling them out with a rag around them I don't think I made them into an oval and lost the, you know have the air blow around the gas and escape around the bullet I think I kept them in pretty good shape but the powder in a magnum shell, come to find out, is a slower-burning powder for full ignition on that larger amount of powder. So you get full ignition before takeoff. That could have been part of my problem. Also, I wasn't right. good at crimping them. I took these little old side cutters, and I crimped them the best I could, and little needle those pliers on them and stuff. But I may have filled them so full, there was not enough airspace for ignition. There's a number of things could have happened. And they were 10 grain heavier than what the factory ammo cost for on that 7 millimeter eight. So... I went hunting. I mean, I made my shells and called my ride man and said, get on over here. I pulled it off. I made some shells. I'm going hunting before that rain hits. And he takes me. And I had problems. I crippled up a 20-point buck first, and I circled on around to the south end of this clearing, and there was this 16-point buck. He was 171-inch deer. And I shot him up. He the same thing. He ran into the brush, disappeared. And I, I knew I had to leave him alone, so I did. But the next day, I saw an incredible deer, one of the biggest deer I've ever seen get away in this windmill trap. And there were several other bucks, nearly a dozen other bucks in there with him. And I couldn't see a lot about most of them, but I saw four or five more of them. And they were all big, too. But this one that I was trying to kill, he was a 30-inch deer on the back tines. They were 15-inch tines. He had 
a real forward hook on those tines, but he had handlebars that stuck out eight, nine inches, maybe ten inches long on each side. I could not believe how wide those handlebars were when he spooked and ran. But I was trying to get on a fence post in that windmill trap and make a perfect shot on him. I wanted to run it right through the vitals in the you know, forward part of the shoulder. And I snapped the twig, taking one more step, and he threw his head up and looked right at me and turned around and just shot out of there, leaping over those weesatch, I call it, those young mesquites that were growing in that windmill trap. And all the rest of them spooked, and it looked like spring buck bounding out of there, just clearing that brush and leaps and bounds. And I knew then those giants were there, but the next day down and away from there, I checked those bullets. I was trying to figure out what in the hell they were doing. And I fired a test shot when the wind got up good late afternoon down in this area where I could get away with popping a shot and not being significant. And it was three inches low. Well, that evening, I shot up another deer. I thought, well, I know what it's doing now. I can handle it. I wanted to see what would happen. I shot this nine point, and it knocked him down. He got back up and took off. I shot again, and the dirt flew up out behind him. So it was falling plumb off the deer at about 80 or 90 yards. They were pathetic loads. But I ended up finding the 16.7 weeks later in March, you know, specifically went way back there just to find and recover that skull. And I did. Went right to it from the last place I jumped him at the next morning. But anyway, the next year, I found the 20 point. And he was in the high 160s. And he had a point broke off his rack that would have been at least another seven or eight inches long. I mean, that was a hell of a deer, but I plaque mounted him, you know what I mean? Yeah. When you're killing those kind of big deer down there, you're plaque mounting 165-inch, 20-point bucks that most people <laughs> give their eyes to, to, to show them out. That is you know, just I so... saw people plaque mount incredible deer. So you, you talk a little bit about, about those loads, and you, and you kind of uh, mentioned that you had, you know, shot and wounded some deer and... and Obviously, you know, you were a different person then and you were, you know, that you were outlaw hunting and doing that stuff. I know what a lot of people are probably thinking of when you shot that many deer, were you, were you using the meat? Were you eating the meat? Uh, were you getting all of it or were you just cutting the heads off and leaving them laying sometimes? How did that all work for you? If, if I said I was getting the meat, I'd be lying and everybody would know it. You can't carry a buck out after he's already spoiled and, you know, warming trend when you're staying two or three weeks. You're not going to get the meat. That's already decided before you go in there. That is that what I did was purely a trophy head hunt. I ate all I could while I was there till it spoiled. Get another one and eat off of it. You know, when you're at an open air fresh meat market, why would you want to eat something that's sour and warmy? <laughs> that's a good yeah. point. I've wondered yeah. that. That's something I've yeah. never heard you talk about before, and uh, I wondered, you know, if you were taking it home or doing any of that stuff. But uh, yeah, yeah, there's no uh, shame in my game. Yeah. yeah, I figured at this point you probably had no reason to lie yeah. about it. So, <laughs> right, right, right. And Charles, Charles, also too. I mean, for for people to kind of understand, um, a lot of your hunts wasn't just I'm gonna hop the fence and then come back at dark. I mean, you. You stayed almost 30 days one time, didn't you? Yeah, I stayed 27 days was the longest I ever hunted. I've hunted a lot of other hunts. That When I was caught, I was going to stay three weeks, and they ended it the third day. And they knew. They they saw all I had in provisions, you know, a lot of bisquick flyer to, you know, batter my meat in and everything. And 
They saw my equipment. They knew I was prepared to stay there for weeks. You know, I could have stayed two or three weeks on that trip. I had no plan to be picked up that trip. I was actually going to wade the bay when I got enough and cross, you know, Baffin Bay at Site 55 and walk out of there. I had my truck parked over at some guy's house in the woods. I was just going to walk all the way to my truck. You know, the bay at Site 55 is about four or five foot deep at best, you know, at the deepest. You just hold your gun up over your head and wade across. Well, the game ones aren't going to like me telling that story, but everybody that lives down there knows it. You know, <laughs> that's the way my buddy brought. That's the way my buddy brought this two hundred thirty inch double drop buck that his son killed. He waded him out across that fifty five. He wasn't going to take a chance of being pulled over in the bay. You know, and and the year before is when he'd been done that way. So he knew there was no way he could get that big deer out of there without wading him across the bay, and that's what he did. Did you have a lot of close calls? <laughs> Like with game wardens and, and ranchers and things like that? I had tons of hot pursuit, but they had no real close shot at me. I mean, I hear pressure, and then I could get miles away many times. But, you know, when they had me in the courthouse, they asked me that question. One of them said, have we been close to you? I just said, no. I wasn't going to give them the satisfaction of knowing they'd been close. But, but in fact, they'd almost caught me at the highway once. And it's one of my stories you've read. It was that war horse hunt when my girlfriend Betty was mm-hmm. getting pecked on. Uh, that, that guy that pulled her over, I think, was Mike Thane. He was in this little Land Rover Toyota-style truck with a camper on it. And what was so funny about that was I'm watching him the whole time from about 70 yards away. I'd move when I saw her being tailed and pulled over, and I moved about 70 yards up the fence away from this gate, you know, the other side of this bridge, and I was watching him. And he'd circle and circle and circle. Then he finally pulled up to that gate, and, he, you know, me and George had cut the lock off that gate the year before and drove in there and spotlighted the shit out of the whole damn ranch. Well, that gate was hot. So he thought, well, I better check that gate, see if anybody's cut the lock. So he pulled up, and he walked up to the gate, and he picked the chain up. And it's just a, it's a chain of locks. It's about what it is. There's so many locks on it. It looks like a chain of locks. And he picked it up, and he shook it real hard. He set it back down. He walked about halfway back to the truck. And he's standing there in front of his headlights. And I'm not kidding you. He was confused. He pulled his hat about halfway back and started scratching his head. And I almost busted out laughing. I mean, that was one of my greatest moments. I was sitting there thinking, he don't have a clue how close he is. I'm sitting here watching him, you know. But that's how hard it is for him to catch you. You got the advantage. You're out there in the dark. Anything they're doing is you know, lit up. You see every move they make. Was it you know, mostly Was it mostly got, at night when they were when they would – come after you or were they you know after you all day during the daytime yeah they was constant pursuit if they heard a shot and in my first seven years when tom east was alive if he heard a shot and if he had a shot reported to him he would be there the next day with five to seven helicopters tom didn't play it was costing him 500 an hour to run each of those helicopters and he'd bring five to seven and he'd light that place up what he'd do He'd kill two birds with one stone. I've forgotten to mention this in some of the other podcasts when I talked about this, but what he'd do, he'd bring in a predator roundup and try to catch the outlaw hunter while they were killing predators. All day long, you're hearing that buckshot just going down through the air under them helicopter blades. And I could just see him up there in that bubble saying, all right, you son of a bitch, where you at? I know you're here somewhere, you little bastard. I could just see him looking for me more than the critters, you know. But they, if they was 
if there was one shot fired the first time that happened, there was 1,500 shots fired. I was a nervous wreck. I was pinned down in a brush pile all day, and I'd roll over on my side every now and then when I'd get a little distance on me, and I'd light up a joint, take a couple of hits to calm my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> and I had I had two heads on my backpack from the day before. I doubled. I killed two beautiful deer back-to-back, 400 yards apart. And so I would enjoy those racks for a moment while I was, you know, smoking a little. And then here come another helicopter beeline me, and I just have to roll over and put my face to the ground. And they blow the leaves off my hair, and I just cover my head right back up with double handfuls of leaves and dirt. I mean, I was afraid they were going to shoot my head. I had a big head of hair then, and I thought, well, they're going to mistake me for a coon in the, in the brush pile if they get a, a view on me and pull up and stop and shoot. They're going to shoot me right in the head. So I was in fear of my life. So what? Pretty hairy. I'm I'm confused about a co- and I've been confused about this since hearing your story. They come at you. I mean, one could argue that Charles Beatty was the most pressured mammal on the Kennedy Ranch <laughs> at this time, but over a yeah. misdemeanor. Yeah, I went, I, what? What? Where was it? Yeah. What, what, I'm just kind of confused. Why would they be using up all of those resources to catch you over a misdemeanor? Well, Tom East could write a check for $200 million and it would be good. Money wasn't a problem for him. What the deal was, yeah. was he loved those deer. Tom loved those deer. He didn't want his own mother shooting one. And he would let his family doctor, who made house calls, delivered his babies out there on the ranch, he'd let him shoot a spike every year because he told him he loved deer meat. But he did not want those giant bucks killed. It, the thought of it drove him insane. He was more insane about protecting those deer than I was killing one of them. And money was no object to him. That man was possessed with it. And, you know, apparently he had a temper problem because the way he died, he was I think he was 60 years old. And he was on a drilling site where they were clearing this drilling site, cut down some trees, some pretty live oak. And he got mad because they were cutting trees he did not want cut. And he got real upset and fell over dead of a heart attack. Hmm. I mean, he's worth hmm. millions. And, you know, he just took all that that serious. He loved that ranch. Listen, I shared his passion. I love that ranch, too. I fell in love with that piece of planet Earth. As far as I was concerned, there was no other place on Earth. I didn't want to see her go anywhere else. I want to stay right there. I would found heaven on Earth. And that's the way he felt. I don't blame him a bit. If I owned it, I'd have been in the helicopters chasing him. You know, I understand. Mm-hmm. We had mutual respect for that land and all the wildlife on it. It's an absolute paradise. You know, That's... words can't describe yeah. the land, the game, the beautiful non-typical racks that are all over it. The most bucks yeah. I ever saw at one time was over 100 in this one clearing. You could see a hundred bucks from where I was standing. Every one of them were big. They had racks. Every one of them had racks. And I've seen large numbers in late winter, what they call up north, they call it yarding up, where they come down out of the mountains and the timber, and they get in the lowland and, and survive the hard part of the winter. And there are hundreds of them. They yard up, they call it. Well, I've seen them do that in the Kennedy. I've seen them go to the southernmost portion of the live oak and just turn into masses of big bucks. I've seen it. I saw 50 to 70 one, one time, one morning at daybreak. They were moving north back into the brush and had this brick layer with me. It's that story, blast brick in the wall. 
and we saw this group of bucks that I'd never seen that tight, that many, that big. It was unbelievable. But they'd migrated late in that year, and it was a hard winter, and they were down there feeding on the winter wheat at night out in the open, and they could return to the brush at daylight. And we topped this hill there by this place, this camp I had called the Devil's Den, and we saw them. And we took off running, and most of them got in the brush before we could skirt the edge and get up there. And, you know, this guy with me, he he just wasn't moving quick enough. And when we got to the edge, I saw this real wide, black horn, beautiful deer, and I was going, shoot me, shoot. And he didn't see the one I was talking about till it turned and moved. It just made me sick. I've, I've watched four or five of the biggest deer I've seen get away because I had somebody with me that, that wasn't up to snuff. They just weren't a good enough hunter to spot what was going on. And they let them get away. I'm talking 30-inch bucks. Incredible deer. Mm. Uh, you know, it makes me sick. I started getting to a point where I didn't want to go with anybody anymore because of it. And I would take people, and they'd cost me the big one of the hunt. And it'd make me sick. Yeah. Maybe two or three on, on a hunt. And I'm just about through taking people. Tired of babysitting. Did people just know? <laughs> did people just know this about you? Did, was it like just everybody knew Charles Beatty's a poacher, and he's an outlaw hunter, and that's what he does? It's just a matter of time before he gets caught. Was this like, was this a known thing about you? Absolutely. Everybody knew it. I mean, I'll put it this way. From the time I shot Big John in 1979 until I was arrested in 1998, everybody knew because Fort Worth knew about Big John in, in an hour or so after, you know, I talked to my old boss. Once Fort Worth found out, all of Texas found out about John. You know, period, in the story. That deer did it. That made everybody aware of who I was. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. Yeah, and Charles, didn't, 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 uh, didn't Big John win, win like a, like a buck contest? Like, didn't you take a, a, a deer off? No, the that's, that's a, a 180. Contest? No, that, that, that was okay. a higher scoring deer, but thinner horns, wider, long, 12 long points with eight inch forks on 12 inch back tines. It, it's a beautiful deer, but, once you've killed one of them big heavy horned deer, you don't care a thing about any of the other ones. You don't care nothing about them. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't mean nothing. It's kind of like, you know, but it's kind of like, don't be offended by this, but have you ever been to a truck stop late at night and you got, you, you can see all the women in the parking lot and you're like, they're not truckers, right? It's like everybody, <laughs> everybody knows what this woman's doing out there in the in the truck yeah. stop parking lot everybody knows what she's doing but it's like eh, you know whatever it's kind of how it seems how your life kind of was not not uh not to purposely compare you to a queen of the truck stop <laughs> but um right. it, everybody it's just everybody knew and it was just like well one day he's gonna get caught and that happened so tell us a little bit i'm running low i'm i'm road tripping right now and sitting in my car doing this and my my computer's on its last leg but i definitely don't want to get away you have so many stories and i think people can listen and read your book listen to the podcast that, that you've been on um and and i definitely don't think anybody's going to regret doing that it's not a waste of time but i think we would be failing if we didn't talk about uh when you did get caught and you got arrested so tell us a little bit about, you know, what led up to that. How did that all happen? Well, this whole thing is just the plan of God. I mean, my story is what it is, but God's taking it, and he's going to use it to reach a lot of people. All this attention I'm getting, is there's a purpose coming in it. They don't see that, but it's coming. 
I've got a testimony so shocking and so revealing that, I, you know, I understand why this cancer took so long for me to get well. It's the timing of God. He's always right on time. First, he gathers the big audience with the stink bait, and I'm establishing credibility because everybody hears my stories, and they know this guy don't have loose screws. This guy's telling it like it is. So when I bring on the strong spiritual aspect of, in part two, they're going to not be able to deny it. No one will say, hey, that guy's just lost it. There's going to be credibility. There's going to be iron in my words. And so God's going to use me as a loud voice in these last days. But what happened on my arrest and capture, I had grown tired of it. That summer, I was fishing on Brazos River by myself, and I prayed, and I said, all right, God, you've got a plan for my life, like you've told me, through other people in the church. Let's get on with it. I'm tired of the outlaw hunting. If i got to give it up, I'll give it up. I'm ready to give it up. And, you know, I didn't say much else after that. Just felt the peace. Well, I hunted through that next year, took some other people, got on this hunt by myself for 12 days up in the Dimmick County, and I was up in this tree trying to get a bearing on where I wanted to head next, what kind of brush I wanted to head towards next. And I heard some squelching on the radio, static, the voices, and I was like, uh-oh, somebody can maybe see me up here in this tree. And I jumped down out of that tree. I took off running, and I had those mop-bottom boots on where I was track-free. But I didn't know there was a Sendero cut right there in that heavy brush, and I was on it before I saw it. And I didn't have no choice but to run right on across. I could hear a truck coming down it. And he was falls to the walls, heading right at me. I just glanced over enough to see he was a couple hundred yards from me coming right at me. And I just blew on up into this heavy brush. I got up in that heavy brush, and I started laughing. It was so thick, I got hung up and stalled out in it. And I had to kind of work my way out of it and get a direction and get on through that. But I knew they weren't going to be able to track to me. So I started, you know, thinking, yeah, welcome to the big leagues, boys. And I heard the Spirit of God say, you will be caught this year. I said, right, they're going to catch the king. You know, they said it in my spirit. And he heard me, and he said, you will be caught this year. And so <laughs> here I am two weeks later in the Kennedy. I heard one of those game wardens 30 yards from me down in this oak bottom. I'm on this edge on the sand bin. this prairie for four to five miles to the west of there. I'm sitting there, and I hear these footsteps. I know what footsteps on those leaves in that Kennedy Ranch sound like. I've been listening to my footsteps. I got up. I got spooked. And I walked over there real slow and quiet, and I peeked down in the bottom. And after telling this a few times on these podcasts, I remember hearing just about two or three steps leaving out, passing on through. And I went, well, it sounded like a human, but I guess it was a nail guy. So I got spooked anyway. I said, get in the brush. Get in the brush. My instincts kicked in strong. I knew. I went over and picked my backpack up, hooked it on one shoulder, grabbed my rifle. I heard the Spirit of God say, just sit back down 10 more minutes. I needed 10 minutes for the sun to hit the horizon where I could get out in the prairie. I was going to move four to five miles to that Parita country, get the whole big body of live oak there, and start hunting there the next day. And so I kind of chimed on that. I didn't want to sit down, though. I was real restless, and I, I sat down. I, I was kind of like taking over in a trance. This kind of a peace came over me. I sat down. I got against my backpack. I thought, well, I'll have a candy bar, calm my nerves, get ready for the trip across the prairie. So I ate this little fruit juicy bar and put another dip of Copenhagen in. I just got started on a good dip. There he is, right there. Get your hands up. And I turned around, and there was a wall of men, like eight men running wide open at me. Seven game wardens in uniform and a, and a ranch security. 
And they were less than probably 18 yards from me when I saw them. I barely had enough time to turn around and come up on one knee to see where the voices were coming from, and they were just gaining on me quick. They ran right up to me, stuffed four or five pistols to my head, threw me face down to the ground, handcuffed me. I said, don't move. Well, I wasn't about to move. And, uh, man, I, when they stood me up, I heard God again. And he said, I told you, you would be caught this year. And, I mean, then it just all came together for me. I said, well, this is it. He's, he's bringing it all to an end. I'm in his hands now, and he's going to show me what direction he's going to take me in. But like I said on the Alabama deal, I think, or, yeah, uh, it's the hell of it is. It's been another 20-something years, and I thought I was going to die with the skin cancer. Then I come out of it, and I'm almost well. I've got a little surgery ahead of me on my solar place. Some small places all over, they're, they're fading fast. My strength is, is coming back. But I'm just now seeing it all come to fruition. In other words, it's, it's, it's in progress right now. I can't reveal everything yet that's coming. But, you know, the first year I had gone back to the poaching, I was missing my son when it all blew over. And this man came in one day, and he was wanting to sell insurance. But he, I said, my dad sells insurance. He's got me covered on all that stuff. And he goes, well, you mind if I look around? I said, no, I don't mind. So he starts looking around. I've never been in a taxidermy before. It's neat stuff. And uh, he saw a sunrise I had taken a picture of, pinned to the wall, and I wrote on it, glory to God. And he saw that. And he said, are you a Christian? I said, yeah, not a very good one anymore. And he said, why not? I said, yeah, my wife ran off with a banker to Missouri and took my son. He said, my wife ran off with a doctor. He said, it's hard to compete with that money, isn't it? I laughed. He laughed. He said, well, I'll pray with you about it. I said, well, I pray till I'm purple. He said, well, I can either leave or I can pray with you about it. It's your call. I said, well, I'll pray with you about it. So me and my buddy Eddie was sitting there. We, He said, let's join hands. So we start holding hands, and he starts praying. This guy was a powerhouse. He peeled the paint <laughs> off the ceiling before he got through. He was praying, you know, in a, in a natural form at first. He was saying, you know, God, give this man a son. <laughs> a natural desire to see his father. And, you know, next thing I know, I feel the power of God coming out of him. Going, It was actually going out of him into Eddie, out of his left arm into Eddie, and through Eddie into me, and it was like electricity. And it was flowing, circled, round and round and round and round. And he started speaking in unknown tongues. Well, I mean loud. He was knocking a hole in the roof of the building. I had a buddy asleep in the front room, and he thought it was me at first. And then he realized this is someone else. And he stayed put. He was afraid to come in there. Well, this guy winds <laughs> down after a bunch of unknown tongues, and then he starts thanking Jesus and over and over a few times, and then he starts prophesying. And he said this to me. He said, yeah, your pathway has been a dark and a clouded one, and you have not understood he said, but I will make thy pathway a bright and a shining one, saith the Lord of hosts. And then he went to praising God and all. And I'm seeing that happen now 30 years later. 30 years later, I'm seeing it happen. I'm seeing God keep his word to me. He's, he's brought me from the background to the foreground. I've got a testimony that a lot of was back then. Some of it has occurred since then. And I know why I went through what I went through. I know why. 
I know I was alluding to it earlier. I know why it's taking this long. He's allowing me to establish some credibility before I launch the nukes. I've got some supernatural stuff coming that nobody would be able to receive without first building a foundation where they see I'm, you know, I'm not some crackpot. <laughs> I'm going to be telling the truth. And so that's why the timing on it is like it is. You know, you could say, yeah, it's just taking this long to get over the cancer. God could have healed me from this cancer in a split second. He didn't. He hasn't. But he's allowing it to come together in his timing. And when it's all full circle, and I hope I've got part two complete by this Christmas season, then everybody's going to hear my testimony. They're hearing my hunting stories. They're not going to be able to doubt my testimony. It's strong. I have no missing teeth in any of my testimony. It's a full set of teeth. So, you know, everybody needs to know that. I it's can't not, wait to hear it's it. Not just a hunting, it's not just a hunting story about a guy that broke the law and got away with it a bunch. There's a purpose in my story. The, the hunting is just a stink bait to draw a large audience's attention. So that's the name of the game for my book. That's the purpose. You know, otherwise, it'd be a tingling brass. It'd mean nothing, you know. It'd just yeah, be a criminal yeah. bragging on his crime. Yeah, absolutely. But everybody's going to see it, and no one's going to doubt it when it comes out. <laughs> well, I can't. I cannot wait to to hear that and to to read that new book, uh, whenever it comes out. And uh, I got to say that as you're telling that story, I'd never heard you talk about the guy who came in and prayed with you and and no, all that stuff. Either. And yeah. I was I was thinking about how, uh, and this is just the way my mind goes. Charles, so don't be offended by it. How funny would it have been if some guy had come into the taxidermy shop trying to hold a, trying to bring you a dead deer and walked in at that moment and saw that going on and y'all looked up from the prayer and said, he's like, uh, I think I'm at the wrong place. <laughs> Turned around and walked up. Uh, let me tell you what, let me, let me tell you what happened. For three or four weeks, the spirit of God was so strong in that room in my taxidermy shop. Everybody that walked in would stop at the doorway and, and back up a step and they'd say, all right, what has happened? They could feel it. They could still yeah. feel the presence of God in that room. That's wild. And I'd have to tell them. I would explain to them yeah, what had happened. I mean, the power of God stayed in that room for weeks. I mean, me and my buddy Eddie, every now and then, we would say, ooh, and he'd say, yeah, I felt it too. I mean, it kept hitting us. <laughs> that's wild. Oh, man, that's well, awesome. Charles, that's awesome. I, I hate to I hate to cut you off um, because I know there's a lot of stories in there, and and uh, I I have thoroughly enjoyed every yes. time I've gotten yes, to talk yes. to you, and uh, and I do appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us and, and talking to our listeners about it. I think it's uh, it's been a great yes. episode. Thank you so much, Charles. Well, Thank you. Yeah, I think we're at a great quitting point. But, you know, everybody just needs to accept the fact that this ain't what they might think of it is. You know, it, you get a misconception about it in a lot of people's minds. But give it give it a chance. And when it's out completely, everybody's going to know there's really something big. You know, the purpose in it was big. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, you have a good one. Thank you so much for coming on. And, uh, uh, I cannot wait to share this episode with the rest of the world. I think it's going to be a good one. Yeah. All right. But you thank you guys for having me. Drew, I don't even. How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, I feel like it was extremely honest. Um, 
I also feel like if you come in with a preconceived idea of, you know, as, as soon as you hear the word, you know, poaching or poacher, um, that you can have a preconceived idea of it. And, um, and yet, yes, we don't condone poaching. Yes, it was wrong. Yes, he, 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 he got tried for it and convicted. Um, but, but also you can also miss the, the uh, second chance too, you know? And so I, it was just very interesting all the way around. That's, you know, that's how I feel. And I still, you know, even as we're sitting here recording and, and he's sharing these stories and we're kind of laughing at it, we're kind of taking a little bit of a lighthearted approach to it, even though it is a, a serious thing. And, and we're lovers of the land, you know, like we're, mm-hmm. we are conservationists as hunters. That should be our number one, you know, goal. And it, it, there, there is a tension that, that I'm not going to lie. I'm thinking about, you know, when we post this episode up, guys who are listening to this right now, we, we could potentially lose listeners and, and, and yeah. I don't want that to happen. I want people to understand. That's why no. I wanted to, to talk to you about it um, after the fact. Yeah. I want people to understand that we're, we're not condoning, but my gosh, these stories are insane. They're, I mean, well, and yeah, that that's that that's most of the reason why I was laughing just because it, it wasn't because he was breaking the law. It was because, I mean, there's a good chance I'll never see seventy bucks in my lifetime. <laughs> You know, yeah, I don't think I got 70 bucks left in me, you know, like, yeah, like I don't, I don't think I, I, and, and I mean, and then also, you know, when, when he said, you know, he goes, I was, you know, I'm, I'm like Plaque Mountain 160s. I'm like, Lord Jesus, like, what, what are you, what, you know, like, I, and so I was laughing in disbelief really just because I'm like, just with what he was doing, um, and the amount of deer and bucks and everything that he was seeing, it's so foreign to all of us. Um, and, and, you know, but at, at, at the same time too, and, and he was very honest and I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, Parker, about like, you know, Hey, so, you know, as a, as a hunter, what were you doing with the meat? You know, and he, and Charles was honest. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and, and so I know there's a lot of guys, even myself included, when I was reading the book, I'm like, okay, well, so you just caping them out and leaving them, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm like, I don't, I don't agree with that, you know? Um, but, but, but at the end of the day, you don't I really think, agree with any of it. You know, I mean, you yeah, can't you, say you, that he's you worse. Any of it. You can't say that he's worse no. for, for not eating it than he was for already poaching the deer. I mean, it, it's a, no, he broke the law. He's, yeah. he, he paid his dues. What was due at that time, you know? And yeah. we always, how many times do you brag about, you know, going over the speed limit or laughing about, man, you're going 90. Like, ha ha ha. You know, that's, that's a, that's how we view. That's how a lot of it was viewed back then. And so you have to remember the, the consequences just were not there. I'm glad they're there now. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's punishable, but also slavery was legal at one time. And uh, you could, I mean, there's weird laws that are even exist today. Like you can beat your wife in certain circumstances like that. They're just, just odd, weird, strange laws that were legal at one point and, or, or the penalty was not 
terrible. And so you, you just have to yeah. understand the time that it was and the fact that a guy could go and poach a deer for $35 that would have cost yeah. thousands of dollars to do it legally. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's that's the state's fault, in my opinion. Yeah. It doesn't make what he well, did right, but it's that's not no. a very harsh penalty to put on somebody for that. No, and 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 too some of the reasons, like he, I mean, whether you, I mean, whether you like him or not, you can't deny the fact that he's a really good storyteller. Absolutely. You know, um, and and you know, with with that deep uh, South Texas twang that he's got, and you know, I mean, like, so there's parts of it where I was just, I was literally just laughing at at him telling the story, yeah. just because he he he's just he he he's got little funny one liners and funny sayings and. Um, and so it was, man, like, and, and, but, but also too, Parker, there, there has to be some part of us too that, um, if, if all we talk about is like, oh, well, um, we, we, we just want to talk about conservation, but we don't get into like the tension part of things. And like, these are people that don't agree with it. I mean, like if, if all we talk to are people that we agree with all the time, then we're probably not growing either as a person, Yeah, that's true. you know, and 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 so which one what's your when, whenever you told me we were talking to him i was totally on board with it and um once again guys we are not saying go and poach <laughs> we are totally against it all right yeah absolutely um, but 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 also if we have to keep saying that to you in these conversations and 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 one time isn't enough then i would also say you probably need to look at yourself too and um because like we're 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 not poaching you know we just want to have a conversation with a guy that did it for a long period of time. And yes, he has incredible stories, but also his story just and his life is incredible. And so we, we can't dismiss that too. You know, abnormal. I, I, I just loved it. The whole purpose behind local legends is normal guys doing abnormal things in the whitetail woods. Yeah. And I think that this definitely fits that bill. Um, it's you know the guys killed a ton of great deer, um, but not even glorifying that as much as just the quality of that story. And you know I'm I'm sitting here thinking like you know I know how to do some short film stuff. I want to see a freaking movie about this guy. Like I, I would watch it. That's an amazing movie. Yeah. You know and yeah and whether whether or not I, I don't personally believe that it's tall tales or anything like that. The guy's got nothing to lose. He got arrested. You can see the pictures. There's plenty of pictures of everything. Uh, I think he's a great storyteller. Um, I would watch a movie. I mean, we watch movies about people running drugs all the time. You know, like I would watch a movie about this. That's an exciting story. And uh, I don't want to get too, too far into it. We've, I think we could talk ourselves to death trying to justify the episode and i really don't think we have a reason to justify it i think it's a it's a great no. story and and uh, i really do appreciate charles charles for for coming on and talking to us about his uh his past and that's exactly what it is it's his past and uh yeah i'm glad that god's not going to judge us on judgment day for our past amen to that brother yes sir all right let's wrap this thing up Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast. As always, a big shout out to all of our partners, Spartan Forge, Tethered, New Canoe, and Scree Gear. 
You can keep up with Southern Ground Hunting by following us on Facebook and Instagram or subscribing to the YouTube channel. And be sure to check out southerngroundhunting.com to pick up some of our merch. I truly hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and we'll see you here again next week. Remember that God gave you dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the earth. So go out and exercise that dominion. We'll talk to you next time.